for folks out there who are listening. Goodness gracious. There's a lot of, uh, should we start with the horrible things that police have done? I think that's probably apt, I should say. There is video footage of a man who was eating a sandwich on a BART platform, as many of us have done throughout our time. And uh, I'm going to get so angry even uh, talking about this. And police threatened to arrest him, and they I believe they had handcuffed him as well. And similar to that, in New York City, there was a woman who was selling churros to women who had been arrested. And there was a kid who was selling candy. And there was video footage of... Oh, I should provide a trigger warning. Hi, we're talking about the cops. So, yikes. Fuck them. Okay. And, yeah, so while they insist that there's a lot of crime and that, oh, we should be wary of fair evaders, the cops themselves end up costing even more money than folks evading fair. And in addition, they end up traumatizing people who are merely trying to make a living and or support themselves and or eat. I have never been threatened by someone who's eating a sandwich, nor somebody selling churros or candy. I have, however, been threatened by cops. So who's the real villain here? Ugh. Ugh. Frustrating. I did read a statistic, and this goes back to New York as well, that in 2017, New York City paid out $302 million for police misconduct. So all of that money that they're paying out for police harming people uh, could have gone to so many other things, like feeding people, providing low cost for transit, housing, and... Someone has calculated, Red Durkin on Twitter calculated, that's, I believe, like around 109 million jumped turnstiles. So that could have also just paid for millions, hundreds of millions of jumped turnstiles in New York. And instead they have to pay for people to police them. It's fucking ridiculous and it's obscene. Also, while on the topic... The Intercept has an article out about how the New York Police Department has illegally fingerprinted juveniles, and there's a whole article about that. I'm not going to read it because we are... I'm not going to be reading too much. I'm going to mostly be reading some headlines, and if folks are interested in, in checking more out, uh, you can go ahead and, and do that online. Something positive, though. I guess it's the positive news here when folks show up and protest bad things that are happening. That's how the positive things work oftentimes. So I did want to at least mention some positive things that are happening, including if you want to follow on Twitter the hashtag no tech for ice there are students who are taking days of action, and there's one that's happening and coming up on November 19th, and you can find more information at Mihente on Twitter, and that's at C-O-N-M-I-J-E-N-T-E, or at action.mihente.net. And there are students from Stanford, Cal, Brown, Georgia Tech, Yale, University of Chicago, Penn, Tufts, Carnegie Mellon, Puget Sound, Cambridge, Edinburgh, and St. Andrews who are all taking part in this No Tech for Ice Student Day of Action. If you are also interested, please get in touch. And the more folks who can show up, the better. Similarly, well, I mean, yes, this is along the same lines of students showing up. 100 plus students today at Harvard Law walked out on a talk that was hosted, that was, uh, yeah, hosting extremist settler leader and current consulate general of Israel in New York, uh, Danny Dayan. And there are very few people left in the room that 
this person was addressing. So students are really taking a lot of action. And if you're interested in any of the stories that I'm reading, I also tend to retweet a lot on Twitter. That's kind of, I've been taking a break from Facebook partially because, I mean, they're, we always knew they were evil. Now they're super just like, yep, yeah, Breitbart's a news source, even though they're white nationalists and they're causing harm. Speaking of which, here's a great segue. And not great if you're worried about humanity. Uh, Sleeping Giants, which you can follow at SLPNG underscore Giants, reported that there's a white nationalist group in Maine that has they are they are advertising for folks to kill muslims literally that's what they're advertising for and facebook is letting that group stay on on the site and people have been protesting saying hey get this fucking shit off here and oftentimes without swearing but probably also with swearing and facebook has refused you can also read more about that at mainernews.com there's also a story about how in scotland the Neo-Nazi and right-wing forces are gaining more power. Ugh. And also in Denver and, and Boulder, there are other right-wing groups that were also attacking people. And so um, if you want to follow, there's a couple of accounts that are sharing information as how um, this was happening. I think this happened. Well, I'm sure it's still happening, unfortunately. It was happening in a few months ago. And some folks are taking them to court. So if you want to support the anti-fascists who have stood up for community, uh, you can follow, find more information at COS Anti-Fascists or at uh, Rocky Mountain Antifa, which is at R-C-K-Y-M-T-N-A-N-T-I-F-A. So there's a couple of accounts that are just sharing more information. Oh. <sighs> Frustrating. Frustrating is not even the word. It's terrifying. It, quite frankly, it's terrifying, especially for folks who don't recognize what's happening. And this idea that somehow, oh, if we just get this one person out of office, everything's going to get better. However, it's the it's the system that's in place. It's his followers. It's the entire administration. There are folks who have been around forever who have been, or at least for many generations, causing harm. And we're experiencing more of it. Oh. My computer, I currently am computerless, which I'm looking at the bright side of in that I'm not spending quite as much, I guess I'm spending time on front of my phone, so there's still a screen in front of me, however, less time in front of a computer, so I'm trying to think about the, the positive side effects. However, this does read, leave me to read my notes uh, for the news stories with my notes, my handwriting, which has gotten a, a little bit loose over, over time, but that's okay. Sad news, uh, hate crimes are up 58% in San Francisco. This is just, yeah, sad fucking news. Okay, well, last week was my birthday. I played music for most of the show, so perhaps we're just kind of evening things out now. Um, also, there are some DACA rallies that have been happening. One happened outside the Supreme Court, as well as in Los Angeles. Fuckface, I can't even say his fucking name. You know who I'm talking about, although there are plenty of people whose names are just ugh, causing so much harm in the world. The administration's just, I can't, I'm going to get too angry to talk about. So if you'd like to read more, you can follow me on Twitter. I end up sharing quite a few stories. Oh, goodness. In Oakland, if you follow at Village Oakland, uh, support has been needed for residents at East 12th Street and 17th Avenue. I believe there are 21 tents that were there. And similar to what's happened in San Francisco, there are what they call sweeps, where folks who are living in tents are robbed pretty much by the city by the police department by department of public works whoever it may be they decide to spend their time energy resources and money taking people's possessions their shelter their medication people's walkers 
people's ashes. Like it's fucking ridiculous and it's disgusting. And that's because that'll bring me to my update on the election. And you, you would think I'd be like happier considering the folks I voted for, for at least uh, DA and district or people I wanted to have win at least for district five, since I, don't live in that district i couldn't vote for it however i was pushing for dean preston you would think i'd be like happy because very rarely do folks i vote for win it's just a thing that doesn't happen a lot so i was i was surprised and excited for a little bit and i was definitely worried ahead of time even though i recognize elections are only you know it's only a piece of it and how do you change something that's systemic and at the same time if you have people in positions of power who are at least looking to do the right thing or look out for the greater good that's better than not and some some of the tech billionaires and, and the folks who follow them have been freaking out a little bit since Chesa Boudin, who, grateful, was elected. Uh, they're just worried because they, they think of him as being soft on crime because he wants to get to the root of you know poverty and to not incarcerate a lot of people, which sounds like a, a good thing. And so folks are like, oh, my gosh, San Francisco, what's going to happen now? And they're like, oh, these car break-ins. And the, the idea, if they're, if they're talking about theft, the thing that frightens me and makes me angry the most about theft are the folks who are in tents, who have their tents taken away, people's shelters taken away, people who have very little material items, those items are taken away by the city. So once again, more of the violence happens through the state. So for the, for the folks who want to talk about crime, it's interesting which crime they focus on. And it also goes back to the the train, like the BART police and well as the NYPD, where they are ticketing and trying, threatening to arrest and sometimes even assaulting folks who are either eating food or selling food. And why, like the cops are in those situations, the cops are the ones who are causing the harm. They're acting like criminals. Oh. However, um, some of the propositions that passed were good. Um, so that's positive. I think it's Prop D that's going to hopefully give more money to Muni and will hopefully provide Muni with more funds to, to for drivers, and that will just make service a lot better. And also Dean Preston, who was elected, is someone who has really championed public transportation, and he was quoted in an article I read a while ago saying that he ideally Muni should be free. So I think the idea of pushing that along services that are there for everyone will be a lot better Woo. okay that's a bit of a rant i wasn't planning on saying quite so much and well it came out coming up in a little bit i'm going to be playing a podcast that i'm going to listen to so i can learn more about the coup in bolivia some folks aren't calling it a coup but it's just kind of goes in line with the u.s and south american countries and like oh if there's a socialist who's elected the u.s better get its butt in there and it's just fucking awful what's happening and i want to learn more about it so it's the podcast is called red nation and it's the title of the episode it's called the red nation podcast and it's the coup against uh, Evo Morales with Ben Norton. So I'll be playing that in a little bit. Going to take some music break, play a little bit more Gang of Four, and then we'll get back to the uh, that next podcast. Stay tuned.
I'm starting it right now. Yeah. I'm a journalist in the U.S. in the settler colony known as the United States of America, and I am the assistant editor of an investigative journalism website called The Gray Zone, and we focus on U.S. empire. It's investigative reporting focusing on the crimes of U.S. imperialism, and especially in the past few years, we focused a lot on Latin America because, you know, in the Obama administration, of course, the U.S. was still overthrowing independent leftist governments in the region, still exercising this kind of neo-colonial control over the region. But under Trump, it's really gone to new heights to the degree where you now have several Trump administration officials openly invoking the Monroe Doctrine, which is the explicitly colonial 200-year-old U.S. colonial doctrine that treats Latin America as its own backyard. So in the past two years, I have done reporting in Colombia, Venezuela, Honduras, Nicaragua, Ecuador. So there's a lot of stuff happening, and Bolivia is unfortunately the latest in this longer pattern, right, of neocolonial aggression against this region, which has been trying to free itself and just fight for independence. And we have seen what's happening now in, in Brazil.
Yeah, and I think it's almost been a year since Trump was at the United Nations actually invoking the Monroe Doctrine and this kind of like hemispheric manifest destiny that the United States not only has uh, lays claim to its, you know, contiguous uh, land base, with, which is now known as like the 48 states and of course like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam, uh, and Alaska, um, which are not connected. Um, but it also is saying that it controls the destiny and the future of of the entire hemisphere. And this goes, this actually precedes, the Monroe Doctrine actually precedes Manifest Des Destiny. And so oftentimes people say the Manifest Destiny influenced the Monroe Doctrine, but it's quite the opposite. Uh, American foreign policy and domestic policy, as we now know it as settler colonialism, has always been imperialistic. And I think it's important to remember that. And also at that same UN meeting, I believe uh, Ebo Morales um, directly challenged uh, the U.S. kind of interpretation of its of its um, dominance and his, its uh, uh, assumed hegemony um, over Latin America. And so this is in many ways um, a kind of revanchist uh, settler colonialism that's being exported, not just within, you know, it's it's being exported to other places like Bolivia, like Venezuela. And one thing that really caught my eye, and I, I, I think it's a great place to start this conversation, is when Fernando uh, Camacho, the opposition leader in, in Bolivia, who's really kind of um, leading this, this right-wing racist coup, entered the Plurinational uh, Legislative Assembly yesterday and put a Bible over the Bolivian flag uh, inside that government palace. And he announced that uh, Pachamama, or the Andean indigenous word for kind of the, the goddess of, of, um, of all creation will, quote, never return to the palace. Bolivia belongs to Christ. No, I mean, it says everything alone, just that alone. And of course, there's also been numerous videos published of these opposition fascists burning the indigenous flag that is used, that is recognized as the dual flag of Bolivia and this is an important point to keep in mind is that if you listen to the rhetoric of this right-wing racist opposition, not only are they opposed to Evo Morales because this is a socialist from the working class, he was a farmer, he was a coca farmer, and he democratically came to power and pushed out the right-wing oligarchs and elites who have dominated Bolivian politics for the entire modern history of Bolivia as a nation state, but also because he empowered and recognized the indigenous peoples in Bolivia and made them part of the country. I'm so glad you mentioned the plurinational state. The opposition has been enraged since 2009 when in his first term, Morales created a new constitution which was voted on democratically by the Bolivian population with nearly 62% of the vote. And this declared Bolivia to be a plurinational state that recognized indigenous peoples as part of the country and also recognized their languages. So in Bolivia, the country recognizes something like three dozen languages, including many indigenous languages and also Spanish. And the, according to the constitution, it says that every government communication needs to be in two languages. One of them has to be in Spanish and then the other one has to be the indigenous language of the community that it's dealing with. So. And another, another major part of that is that until 2009, Bolivia was not a secular state. It actually was a Christian, a Catholic state. And 
For the first time in 2009, this new constitution made Bolivia officially secular, recognizing other indigenous religions. And the far-right opposition forces like Camacho, we'll talk more about him, many of them are descendants of the European colonialists, and not even just the colonialists hundreds of years ago. Several of his major allies are also from Croatian families and other European families who were Nazi collaborators and fascists who fled after Nazi Germany lost in World War II, and they happen to be Christian fanatics. And what's really wild is that their main base of opposition, which is the city Santa Cruz, which is a major financial district, financial hub, it's also the whitest city in the country with the, the smallest indigenous population, in this in in this city, Santa Cruz, there are two major explicitly neo-fascist groups, both of which are closely linked to the opposition coup forces, both of which are European-style fascist phalange, phalangist groups, uh, Christian fanatic groups, and fanatically anti-indigenous groups. Those are the kind of muscle behind this coup. Those are the far-right extremists who who sacked and pillaged the house of Evo Morales and his family members who tortured an indigenous female mayor from his party, the Movement Towards Socialism Party. So there are a lot of things we can talk about, but it's important to understand that these opposition forces are, when we say fascist, it's not just an insult. Many of them are either linked to or actually members of explicitly fascist organizations that saw Evo Morales' administration as not, some, not, not, not only something that challenged their white supremacist colonial domination of this mostly indigenous country, but also challenged the, the Christian fascist kind of hegemonic view that this is a Christian nation. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, you know, when Camacho took over the palace, he said, now we're, we're restoring God to politics. When they say God, they mean white Jesus. Right. And what, what is what is the, like the denomination of this? Is it are they Catholic uh, or are they uh, Pentecostal? Like uh, what's happening in Brazil? Yeah, they're actually mostly Catholics, which is interesting. So, in terms of like the fascist European spectrum, they're kind of more like Francoists, like the kind of Spanish fascists. Although, what's interesting is, I can talk more about this later. But there is a there are two main groups I mentioned, two fascist groups in Santa Cruz that that are behind this coup. And one of them is called the Union Juvenil Cruceñista, which is the the youth the union like the it's hard to translate like the youth union of um, Santa Cruz, like the Santa Cruz Youth Union. And this is a Francoist style fascist group which is linked to a neo-phalangist party, which is called the Bolivian Socialist Falange. Now, they're not socialist. The, re the reason they're called that is because they were created during the fascist era. And, of course, the Nazi party was not socialist. They were fascist. But they use that for historical reasons because socialism was so popular among the working class. Anyway, the point is that this neo-fascist group is based on the Falange, which was the fascist model of the Catholics in Spain. So specifically, what we're seeing is kind of Francoist-style fascists who were inspired by Spanish fascists who carried out genocide and mass murder against ethnic and religious and political minorities inside Spain. 
they're, they follow in that same tradition of kind of Catholic fascism. And what's interesting is they have the backing of Brazil, where you have this more evangelical fascism that is, that is linked to forces like Bolsonaro. And there were leaked recordings, which we can talk about, that show opposition members in Bolivia discussing how they have support from Brazil. And also one of the main far-right opposition leaders in Bolivia lives in Brazil and is a strong Bolsonaro supporter. And he is one of these Croatian Bolivian right-wing oligarchs who has been supporting from afar the coup forces. Yeah. And um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Like, who are these people? I think there's this tendency uh, in, in the English-speaking world, especially in the global north, to really kind of have a naive view. People think that just because people are protesting in the street, that somehow these are forces of good or they're opposing tyranny. Um, and it's a very simplistic um, kind of narrative that's being portrayed. And I, I remember reading on social media, people were reposting this this uh, BBC headline of, you know, the 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 police forces join the protesters in Bolivia and as if that was some kind of like great achievement and it's like if you look at the United States when you know when the proud boys are rolling through Portland they're joined by the cops like this isn't you know there's an alignment with um these particular kind of right-wing forces and the most kind of uh uh um dangerous elements right-wing elements of the state and so who are these people and like what is their backstory in this particular um coup and in, in fomenting it well to understand the opposition forces and the composition of the police and things like that it's important to under also understand who evo morales is because it's not it's not stressed enough that this is a guy who comes not only from an indigenous community but he comes from the social movements Evo Morales was a very poor farmer who was a coca farmer, and he was a part of a, a social movement that was called Movimiento del Socialismo, the movement towards socialism. And then they, they coalesced into a party largely led by the indigenous communities and their local activists. And he's, of course, the first indigenous leader in the entire history of Bolivia. This is a country that has a history of European colonial domination, and he comes in in 2006 and was democratically elected and ushers in this new era where he says, you know, not only are we going to fight for socialism, we're going to fight for sovereignty and equality. And we're going to recognize these indigenous communities who have been not only oppressed, but also intentionally erased from the political architecture of our country for its entire modern history during Spanish colonialism and after Spanish colonialism. And the right-wing opposition, understandably, considering who Evo Morales is, they're the opposite. They are the oligarchs, the descendants of European colonialists. You know, it echoes so many other leaders in the region, but in, including Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But one of the key differences is that Hugo Chavez came out of the military. You know, Hugo Chavez always stressed in his speeches, he famously said, I am part indigenous, I am part African, and he stressed and, and brought in and emphasized indigenous and Afro-descendant communities into the Venezuelan left in a way where traditionally it had been dominated by more you know, elite educated sectors. And Evo was doing something very similar in his own historical and political context. But the difference, and I think this ultimately is one of the reasons that he didn't have as much state control as Chavez did, 
is that Chavez was a very popular military leader who had the military on his side. And then throughout the process of the Bolivarian Revolution, he created a new police force, an explicitly revolutionary police force, disbanding the old police, which were the kind of colonial era police. And actually, if you go to Venezuela today, I just I spent five months there this year. I just got back about a month ago. And if you look at the police in Venezuela, they are largely women and they're they're largely dark skinned. They're indigenous or partially indigenous or black Venezuelans. And they have a very different function in society because they're not the police as they were before Hugo Chavez came in. And and the thing with, with Evo is that Evo came from the social movements and his base was always at the grassroots. So the institutional power of these forces that have a history of links to colonial domination and being tools of colonial oppression, like the police and the military in Bolivia, he never was really able to control. And, you know, there was always this on and off alliance. And, and ultimately, it was the military, of course, that called for him to step down in this coup. And who are the forces politically behind the coup? Of course, they are the landowners. They are the people from the families who controlled the gas reserves and the lithium reserves that were nationalized by Evo Morales because, you know, what's what's incredible is this this idea that Bolivia is a poor country or any of these other countries throughout Latin America or the global south are poor countries. No, actually, of course, they're very rich countries, not only rich in their history, in their culture and resistance, but also rich in their natural resources. And Bolivia actually... You know, this is kind of a stupid Orientalist name anyway, but it's been referred to as the Saudi Arabia of lithium because oh, Bolivia, wow. <laughs> well, it's just a stupid name, but yeah, but, yeah, <laughs> but it has 50 to 70% of the world's known lithium reserves and lithium is very much needed for electronics and for batteries, rechargeable batteries in our phones, our computers and, and cars and Bolivia Evo Morales recognized that and wanted to use that the wealth not only of the gas reserves which he nationalized but also the lithium reserves to benefit the population and to use those resources to fund social programs to help you know help indigenous communities and work with them to help develop their communities and also you know help build schools and create a universal healthcare system which he did which was praised by the United Nations and his idea, like Chavez with the oil reserves in Venezuela, was to use those natural resources to benefit the whole population and not this small elite of European descendant rich people. And he nationalized, he, he did what he, he said he would do. He nationalized those natural resources. And most of the opposition, as you can imagine, are led by these oligarch families that had traditionally controlled those natural resources and have been trying to to reestablish control over the political system ever since he came into power 13 years ago. Yeah, this is like really fascinating because it it gets right to the heart of, you know, what uh, my friend uh, Andrew Curley has, you know, correctly called a green imperialism, uh, meaning that like there's kind of this and even Ebo Morales has called it uh, a colonial environmentalism, this idea that a place like Bolivia you know, is, is, should function only as a resource colony, right? And if it develops its own natural resources, especially like uh, um, uh, something like uh, lithium, which is, you know, which will, which will be used uh, if, you know, this kind of current 
uh, Green New Deal in the United States has anything to say about it will be used in these, you know, this this uh, post carbon future where um, Americans will be, cons you know, driving around in their big SUVs with uh, lithium batteries that are mined from places like, you know, the Andean Mountains, and not just in Bolivia, but in other, you know, other places like Peru. Uh, and this is this the 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 utter contradiction, the failure, in in my opinion, of the left in the United States and Canada, particularly, to understand, to fully grasp, like, what is going on. They would rather um, have Bolivian children go without schools, go without hospitals, um, go without basic infrastructure, just so that they could have the kind of moral authority to say, this place is pure, while never recognizing, recognizing the fact that the United States and Canada and first world countries are over consuming and they're producing 40% of the world's trash, right? So like the United States is 5% of the world's population. It's producing 40% of the world's trash. And they're often dumping it in, in you know, third world countries and places in the, in, the, in the global south. And in this particular context, one of the ways in which um, this uh, coup um, you know, as Sina, he's on the line, as Sina has called it, this gringo fever has been ramped up is to accuse Ebo Morales of being against the environment and being a false kind of prophet of, of Pachamama, of um, indigenous people in their defense of the land, while not even taken into consideration that, you know, he, he he's a coca grower, right? And um, that was at one point in time, one of the main exports of Bolivia was coca. But because of the U.S. so-called drug war, they've strangled that economy and have prevented them from developing that economy. And if you look at a lot of the graffiti um, by the opposition and by the right wing uh, and the slogans against um, Evo Morales, they call him the narco dictator because he's he, he's associated with that coca plant. Um, and so it's just really fascinating that this whole thing, and I don't know if you have anything else to say about that, because I think in the U.S. Um, there's this idea that if we change domestic policy, somehow we're going to just be better consumers and um, better stewards of the environment while completely ignoring the, ignoring this, this imperial reality. Well, of course, a few things to say there. The first quick point I'll say in response to this ridiculous idea that Morales is some kind of narco dictator I mean, this is a guy who, first of all, he's neither of those two things. He's won every democratic election. He has always followed the, the laws of, of Bolivia that he, you know, has worked with the masses of people on. And so part of that is this idea that he, he wasn't allowed to run again because it was his fourth term. But the Supreme Court actually allowed him to run again. So he's going along with what the Supreme Court said. That's completely legal. And as for, as for being a narco dictator, I mean, that is even more laughable. There is no evidence whatsoever. It is a complete lie. And like you're saying, all it is is because when he was a farmer, he was making coca, which is uh, for thousands of years has been what indigenous communities in this area have been growing. And it's only in the past several decades with this neo-colonial imperialist war on drugs which is the most hypocritical thing ever, that this indigenous form of livelihood that people, the communities have relied on for eons has been criminalized. And of course, what that criminalization does is help to further justify the criminalization of indigenous communities and, and ultimately the exploitation of the land and resources that they're, they're living on. And in addition to that, the hypocrisy is just so mind-blowing when you think about the fact that 
if you look at the actual U.S. puppets in the region, it's actually I was I was in Honduras this past summer in June in July for the 10th anniversary of the U.S. right wing military coup there, which is similar to the coup against Evo in many ways. And also like Bolivia, Honduras is a very indigenous population. About 80 percent of the country uh, I mean, it, give or take, it, are descendants of indigenous people. And in Honduras, the president who was overthrown, Manuel Celaya, democratically elected, he was a kind of progressive nationalist who moved to the left. And he was explicitly overthrown because he was making alliances with Lula da Silva in Brazil and Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. What, what he also stressed is that that Honduras is a U.S. colony. That's the language he uses, that Honduras has been made into a colony and the DEA is the biggest drug cartel in the world that uses our country as a haven for drug smuggling. And, and this is not even just him saying that. This is not just the left-wing opposition in Honduras. In fact, a few weeks ago, a New York court, a federal court in the U.S., just sentenced Tony Hernandez, who is the brother of Honduras's U.S.-backed right-wing dictator, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's known as Ho, J-O-H, his brother sentenced for smuggling, smuggling tons, tons, we're talking enormous amounts of cocaine, as well as machine guns, and the U.S. court itself admitted that Tony Hernandez was using this drug money to fund his brother inside Honduras, who was stealing elections even the Organization of American States, which we can talk about, which is a major U.S. puppet force, this right-wing force that has been backing these coups, even they had to acknowledge that in 2017, Honduras stole the election. Of course, we don't, we don't ever hear people in mainstream media and the U.S. government refer to Honduras, this U.S. colony, as a narco-dictatorship. It is an actual narco-dictatorship where El Chapo Guzman himself sent a million dollars in cash to Juan Orlando Hernandez, the puppet leader backed by the U.S. And everywhere you go in Honduras, everywhere I was, we were at, we were at like a middle-class bar, and people will just spontaneously start chanting, Fuera ho! Fuera ho! Get, get out ho! Get out Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president. So like, this country has been so brutalized this, which is also not a coincidentally largely indigenous country, has been so brutalized where its indigenous leaders like Berta Cáceres are being murdered by U.S.-backed leaders, and then they're funding and propping up puppets who are smuggling drugs. Meanwhile, democratically elected leftist indigenous leaders who try to just develop their country. I mean, Evo wasn't even—this idea that he was like some communist—I mean, he was a very progressive nationalist— but it wasn't like Cuba, where in Cuba they just took all of the wealth of the elite rich, slave owner, colonial class. In Bolivia, it was always a, you know, even like a kind of like a bourgeois democracy where he always stood within the lines and abided by the law. And even that was too much for them. And he, he was explicitly a democratic socialist. And I, I, I emphasize that because... There's there was this unwillingness almost um, from, you know, democratic socialists, not all of them in the United States and Canada to to lend um, support on, you know, uncritical support or just just to say, like, this is wrong or to even understand 
uh, and celebrate his social gains. Um, you know, we saw like just the smearing of Evo Morales on the left. Um, you know, I call them the gringo left because <laughs> um, they, they do the job. They're basically stenographers for the State Department. They should be getting paid for this because they're doing the job of of the CIA and smearing and smearing Ebo, uh, people like uh, Ebo Morales. But you brought up a really interesting point. And um, that was connecting Honduras to Brazil and specifically Lula, um, Lula da Silva, who was just released um, from prison, uh, who was, you know, imprisoned um, on false charges uh, by what we now know um, were, you know, uh, kind of an, a directed, a directed uh, arrest um, by Bolsonaro, people associated with uh, Bolsonaro. Um, but Lula da Silva was released from prison and almost a day later, you know, 48 hours later, um, the the president of Bolivia, the, the indigenous president of Bolivia at gunpoint is, you know, overthrown, right? Uh, in a coup d'etat. And I think of this as, as, um, as a revenge uh, of, of these kind of, not just the Brazilian oligarchs, but the Latin American oligarchs and, and cementing kind of um, a backlash or um, using what they see as a weak link in, in Bolivia to destabilize the region. And specifically what you had brought up earlier about these kind of um, these shady characters in these fascists, what is the connection to Brazil and, and Bolivia? Can you hammer that out a little bit? Yeah, for people who want to know the regional alliances in this coup, there are a few important countries aside. I mean, of course, the U.S. government is involved, but also Brazil and Colombia, and then the the right wing coup forces in Venezuela, and Brazil is definitely involved in in a few different ways. So one, a month ago before the election, there were sixteen audio recordings that were leaked, and these audio recordings show opposition members in Bolivia discussing a few different things. One, they discussed how they had support from U.S. officials like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. In other recordings, they talk about Colombia. And then in another recording, they talk about their support from Brazil. And specifically, they said that they had support from Bolsonaro and also from the evangelical church, you know, these far-right evangelical forces. And as your listeners, I'm sure, know, in Brazil, Bolsonaro is a complete fascist. I mean, like, he's a textbook fascist. He, he is a strong supporter of the former military dictatorship in Brazil. And has his biggest complaint was that they they his quote is that they they should have killed and not just tortured, and also he's a, an admirer of the Chilean fascist dictator Augusto Pinochet, and he said that Pinochet's biggest problem was that he didn't kill enough people, and of course Bolsonaro has been greenlighting massacres of the indigenous communities inside Brazil so he can deforest the Amazon. And then so large multinational corporations can use that land to exploit the natural resources, to build houses and resorts. And what's so incredible is to see, you know, you were talking about how some of these these North American environmental groups actually end up dovetailing with imperialist propaganda. And there was this concerted attempt to blame Evo Morales, the indigenous leader or the Amazon fires, well, in Brazil, you have a fascist who called himself Captain Chainsaw and who pledged to destroy the Amazon and destroy indigenous communities. Meanwhile, Evo Morales, 
for people who actually looked at the, the Spanish language media would have seen that Evo actually used government money to, to rent the largest plane he could get, this massive plane, and then fill it full of water to put out the fires. Because the Amazon is not just in Brazil, of course. The Amazon crosses over these arbitrary colonial borders into multiple countries. And Evo himself went out with the firefighters and took photos putting out the fire as this symbolic action of helping to protect the Amazon. But because he also at the same time understands that in order to develop your country, that sometimes does involve using gas and lithium and the natural resources you have, he was demonized by these North American so-called leftists. You know, like Naomi Klein called Maduro a petro-populist, this condescending idea that when people in the global south use their natural resources, even if they're doing it responsibly, and yes, they are doing some mining, but they're trying to balance it with other environmental sustainability, uh, these other policies to balance overall and have a net positive, they're still demonized. And it's like, oh, you just have to leave all of your resources in the ground and stay poor and undeveloped. So, I mean... Yeah, and this the same standard doesn't apply to the U.S. Uh, at all. Like, there isn't the same kind of sense of urgency um, for the people in the United States to just stop driving cars. And it's like externalizing the the change, you know, like, the, oh, it has to happen somewhere else. And, you know, not even taking into consideration, you know, not just not just like a decade of trying to overthrow somebody like um, Chavez, uh, or decades, I should say, and the Bolivarian Revolution, uh, or a decade of trying to over, overthrow um, Morales, but centuries of overthrowing and manipulating um, these governments uh, to basically tool their economies um, as, you know, to essentially be export and single commodity economies for the consumption and, and for the benefit of the first world. And it's it's it, it fundamentally misunderstands, um, you know, commodity supply chains um, and how the the extractivist economies work. Like so in the U.S., for example, um, since the fracking boom in 2007, 2008, they're producing more oil now. And this is part of not just Trump's uh, what he calls um, energy, do energy dominance, but it was also part of uh, Obama's plan to essentially drill the United States out of the Great Recession. Um, but they're not drilling oil to for U.S. consumption. They're attempting to strangle, um, you know, nations like Venezuela uh, and to to essentially get strangle them, uh, implement these sanctions so that they can get out their large oil reserves or at least control the flow. So now the U.S. is exporting. Now Canada is exporting more oil than it can it can consume essentially to choke out these economies. And so it, I think that this idea of. Um, these petrostates uh, misunderstands it because the U.S. and Canada are actually the petrostates. <laughs> exactly. That's the key point. It's, and when we're talking about the natural resources in these countries in the global south that imperialist countries want to control, it's not just because they want to actually can have access to those resources. It's about controlling those resources on the international stage in, the, in international markets to to maintain their control over the financial system. And what you're talking about with oil is a perfect example of that, where Saudi Arabia, you know, this is Saudi, they're not Saudi Arabia, they're the Arabian Peninsula. Saudi is the name of the royal family that the British Empire chose to 
try to create a state which was effectively a British colony and became an American colony, and the Arabian people are held hostage by this American slash British colony in the region. And in 1945, at the end of World War II, during his last Valentine's Day, Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously met with King Ibn Sud, and they famously signed a pact where he said, we will protect your monarchy and hold you in power in return. You give us the oil so we can maintain an international oil market and financial system based on the petrodollar, which is sold in the U.S. dollar, and we can control the prices. And then when you have the growth of organizations like OPEC in the 1970s, when countries in the global south try to actually control their own natural resources and use the price of oil in the global market to develop their countries, they face these same kinds of attacks and coups. And then famously, Hugo Chavez, he said, we need to restore power to OPEC because we are, we countries in the global south that have these oil resources, we are just as powerful if we can stand up to the empire. But of course, that's why they're targeted. Um, another point I wanted to say is that you were talking about we're talking about this issue of mining and indigenous communities. And this is, of course, not new. One of my favorite quotes from Marx is in Capital. And I just got this quote up. It's so good. He said, quote, The discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist accumulation. And he's pointing out that, you know, these countries, these capitalist countries in the global north, these imperialist countries, they began developing their economies on the extirpation and enslavement and entombment of minds of the indigenous peoples throughout Latin America where the Spanish colonialists, they weren't there. I mean, the, the idea that, this idea that colonialists were just there to spread the word of God and, and whatever, and they believed in this white man. No, that's the justification they use to justify committing genocide, murdering these people and stealing their countries and stealing their land and stealing their resources. It's, but then people use that as like the justification, even though, or as the, as the actual motivation, but it's actually the justification. And it's the same, I mean, it's nothing has changed in, in that same dynamic. It, this is, this is, it's neo-colonialism in Latin America where any country in the region that is trying to free itself, and it's not even just Latin America, in the Caribbean, I mean, Haiti's the best example. The first country that overthrew slavery and European colonialism has been punished for 200 years. And for the past several months, yet again, there's been massive protests in Haiti and the only democratically elected leader in the history of Haiti, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, a progressive leftist, has been overthrown not once but twice in coups back by the U.S. Every time that he comes back into power and he's elected, he gets overthrown. So this is how neocolonialism functions. And unfortunately, Evo Morales is, is only the latest example, but it's also the most blatant example because... Finally, there was an indigenous leader ex expressly from, I mean, you know, Hugo Chavez and others were partially indigenous, but finally there was a leader who was himself, uh, was from an indigenous community and was part of an indigenous culture. And he's overthrown by European descendant fascists who are burning 
the flag that he made the dual, the indigenous flag that he made the dual flag of the plurinational state. It's, it's the perfect symbol for neocolonialism 500 years after the beginning of European colonialism. Right, and there's almost a, a playbook in, in these kind of regime change efforts, you know. And I think, you know, to just kind of contextualize it, this is coming out of, you know, the mass protests against uh, Lenin, and, 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 um, which is an unfortunate name, you know, <laughs> in Ecuador. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in Spanish, people often say, Lenin Moreno es un traidor no solo a su país, sino también a su propio nombre, that... Moreno is not only a traitor to his country, but also to his own name. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it was indigenous people who were the front lines of those protests, you know, and they were, uh, many of them were killed. There was, there was dozens of them that were just shot dead, you know, by the police forces. Uh, and Haiti's been um, in a months long protest against these neoliberal policies that are just trying to choke out the country. Um, and you see this, you know, the uprising in Chile, with the Mapuche flag being raised um, uh, over these colonial monuments uh, and in Argentina, the elections there and Lula being freed and the accusation, and, you know, I was just in Venezuela and the accusation that, you know, was leveled by CNN and MBC, M MSNBC was that Maduro uh, was behind all of these things. And all he, and he you know, they, they claimed that all he had to do is like move his mustache. And it was a joke. He was <laughs> making a joke. He was like, I'm not. He's like, I'm not behind these uprisings. He's like, these uprisings are the result of neoliberal policies. They are not the the result of some kind of like clandestine, you know, um, uh, enemy from without or any, enemy, enemy from the outside infiltrating these groups and making them, you know, overthrow their governments or whatever, or demand, you know, f you know, uh, just basic uh, living wages and, and dignified lives. But we can go back to 1973. And I think it's important to do this and look at the overthrow of Salvador Allende, who was, um, you know, Latin America's, um, perhaps America's, you know, all of the America, um, first democratic socialist president. And at the time, it's important to remember, people didn't think it was a coup. One, they, they you know, they, they contested the legitimacy of the president by saying that he was operating uh, beyond his constitutional mandate, when in fact he was trying to uphold his constitutional mandate and saying the the police forces and the you know the the civic forces of the state weren't obeying the constitution. The second one was that the the right wing fascists said that they were trying to restore democracy, right? And then the third one is to ignore or downplay U.S. involvement. And in each of these instances, there was. A, a a protest there was you know uh, tens of thousands of people who marched um to uh, uh santiago um and and protested against his government and at the time the new york times is just saying you know oh it's a contested it's a contested uh democracy it's a contested you know legitimacy of this of this government and we can look at each of these instances playing out in venezuela um in in um in Brazil recently, you know, with the, the arrest and imprisonment of Lula, and now in, in Ebo Morales, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Um, and I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on these ostensible, like what the Western media is, is saying, these ostensible popular forces that are rising up um, against Ebo Morales, because we see, you know, on social media, they're like, well, I have indigenous friends who are with the opposition. And it's like, yeah, if we look at the U.S. Congress, 
half of the, the native um, Congress people are Trump supporters. Of course, it's a divided community. Of course, indigenous people would possibly be supporting the opposition, you know, and I think it's it's immature. And this is a loaded question. Now I'm just um, editorializing. <laughs> but I want you to I want you to kind of um, explain that 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 complex process that's happening on the ground, because people are saying, well, indigenous people are opposed. You know, they've been opposed to uh, Moss. They've been opposed to uh, Morales. Um, and they're they're part of the opposition. Yeah, well, part of it is just honestly a patronizing and frankly racist view of indigenous communities as if they're all the same, as if they're somehow not like other communities. Every community of people has different political differences internally. Like, no, no community is some kind of homogenous block where everyone has the same political views. And also, even talking about the indigenous in Bolivia is misleading because there are dozens of different indigenous communities and they have different leaders in those communities and some of them are pro-MAS, some of them are not. But you can, st but it's still absolutely true to say that the majority of indigenous communities in Bolivia support Evo Morales and there are always going to be exceptions. Just like this, you know, this farce we saw this past week where you have this group blacks for Trump and half the people are white. But I mean, it's true that there are black Americans who support this white supremacist president. Um, and, and, you know, that's a whole long discussion. But it's this condescending view that all indigenous people have the same political views. And, and even beyond that, look, just because people support a particular political force doesn't mean that that political force is going to serve their interests. Right. Evo Morales has it's not even just the fact that he is indigenous. He has done so many things in terms of his policies to help indigenous communities in Bolivia. First of all, the poverty rate, we should have been stressing this earlier, the poverty rate in Bolivia has been more than halved in just 13 years since he's been in office, significantly. And it's important to keep in mind that that's largely not just in urban areas, but in rural areas, because the way when there are people who support Evo represented in the media, even then there's still often this idea that these are people who live in La Paz. These are people who live in the major cities um, or El Alto, which is like a close, like a, like a sibling city, which is a more working class, poor community. But the majority of Evo's base and Mas's base, because Mas is a social movement that became a party, the majority of the base is in the countryside, is in rural areas with indigenous communities but if you watch the media in Brazil or CNN in Espanol or, or Telemundo or these other international Spanish language media outlets, almost everyone is from either La Paz or Santa Cruz, the, the major cities. And they are, you know, urban. They tend to be more educated. They tend to be lighter skinned. So even just like the geography of the way that this country is represented is completely skewed because... Oftentimes, you know, journalists and even many activists and people involved in politics tend to, frankly, they just ignore rural areas and they only think about major cities. And that's, that's including, honestly, people on the left sometimes. They think about, in the case of New York, think about, or in the case of the U.S., they think about New York, L.A., Chicago, uh, you know. But in, in Bolivia, the majority of this base are people who are in communities that are really detached from each other that are still living more traditional lifestyles so that's a reflection of the fact that morales himself 
it comes from that kind of social movement, just like Lula da Silva in, I mean, he wasn't indigenous, but he came in Brazil, he was from the actual working class that he was representing. This is a guy who was raised in a very poor family who, when he was 19 years old, lost one of his fingers in a factory accident. And then he became a labor organizer. And then the Workers' Party was created as a coalition of social movements that created a political arm to try to win political power. That's the same thing that happened in Bolivia. So trying to compare Evo Morales to many of these other leaders is simply not fair because it's just such mm -hmm. a different historical context. Yeah, and Maduro himself was, you know, a bus driver. Um, and so, like, these people are coming from working class backgrounds, and many of them are coming from union uh, organize, uh, organizing backgrounds as well. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, and I, I want to kind of think about what is happening right now. Uh, I'm watching videos on um, Twitter, and uh, many people are taking to the streets. Um, you can you can clearly distinguish uh, who is with um, uh, the golpistas, the regime change um, folks, the, the right wing opposition, because they're only carrying the green, red and yellow flags. Um, but you can clearly see that the the pro uh, Morales forces who are taking to the streets are are flying the Wifila, the the uh, the indigenous flag. And, you know, Ebro Morales um, has stepped down, um, and, you know, at the point of a gun, but nonetheless, he's, he quoted uh, Tupac um, uh, Amaru and saying that, you know, if you kill me, I will come back as millions, you know, and this uh, is, I don't think he's being fatalist, but he's saying that this isn't over, right? A resignation in some, in some ways and could be interpreted as moving towards re-election or shifting the the kind of um the balance of power to the popular forces to re reclaim democracy where do you see this going well one quick thing that's a really important historical point about the wafala flag this indigenous flag is that in the 2009 constitution i mentioned which turned bolivia into the plurinational state it also has it recognizes two flags as the official flags of Bolivia, and the Wafala flag is one of the other flags. So that symbolically is so important for the way that Morales turned Bolivia into a country where the indigenous communities are part of the fabric of governance and are not just voting constituencies for the left to win. Um, but to answer your other question, you know, it's, it's hard to tell the future, of course, but what we are seeing is a massive uprising. And of course, like you said, many of these people rising up are indigenous and poor and working class. But what's also important to point is that it's not just in the indigenous communities, even parts of these urban centers, there are masistas, there are people who support Morales and the socialist movement. So very much the opposition is divided. I mean, of course they lost the election. And this is another point that's not even being stressed, which is so crazy to me, is that even if you, dispute the fact that Morales won by the 10.5% that he won by in the first round. I mean, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which is an excellent think tank in DC, one of the only real good think tanks, and has good economists who are fair economists and who aren't you know, neoliberal capitalist propagandists, they did a statistical analysis of the voting data, which is publicly available from Bolivia, 
and they showed mathematically i mean just objectively that that he did actually win the first round with about 10.5 percent of the votes this idea there was this myth spread by the opposition that the voting stopped for a few hours and then they came back and he had one more vote that's not true that that's a myth that's been spread that's false anyway so but even if you taking that aside even if you dispute the fact that Morales didn't get the necessary 10% threshold to win in the first round, he still won the election. No one disputed the fact that he still got 600,000 more votes. So at the very least, it would have to go to a runoff election. But And, and to be fair, Avo actually said, look, Avo has been saying at every level, I want to avoid violence. I don't want a serious situation. I don't want a civil war. If you... if People refused to acknowledge the fact that I won. Fine, we will go to a new round. And he, in the morning of the coup on Sunday, he said, fine, we can go to a new election. And what was the response of the right-wing opposition backed by the U.S.? He said, okay, fine, a new election, but you can't be a candidate. So that shows that they don't care about democracy. That's the pretext. You talked about the example of Chile with Salvador Allende. It's not about democracy. They don't care about democracy. They want to recolonize these countries and restore the right-wing capitalist elites who will privatize everything, who will ignore the indigenous communities and just and remove them from political life and return back to this these kind of neo-colonies that they turn Honduras into. And then, of course, with, with the people rising up right now, they're facing violence from the state, which which wants them to just go away and never come back. And there was a video posted on the night of the coup, Sunday night, of some of these popular defense forces, these people who have taken up arms to defend their communities and defend their democracy. And there has been videos of some fighting between them and the coup forces. So this is exactly what Avo was trying to avoid, is he didn't want a war. And it looks like if there is going to be conflict, it's because the right-wing opposition refuses to actually abide by the democratic majority and they're only using that as a as a pretext like always yeah and like even in the example of um chile you know the these kind of civilian uh forces that aligned with elements of you know the the national guard i think they were called the carbonistas the uh it was kind of like this police force that had turned against pinochet um when they created that vacuum by knocking out heads of state and by knocking out kind of the central authority of the of the government, they created a vacuum. And Pinochet stepped in and said, I'm not gonna step down after this. And this is the danger of this particular moment right now. There's a there's a political vacuum that has been created in Bolivia, and that's what's making it so dangerous. And I know there's all these opinions on the left about what should, you know, counterfactuals of what Ebo Morales and Moss should have done, but it's 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 not helpful in this particular moment. It's actually really dangerous because you're providing the ammunition um, for these right-wing forces to step in and to say, we are going to provide law and order, right? We are going to provide the alternative that's needed to bring this country back together. And what is that alternative? It's the violence of neoliberalism and opening up like what you just said. All of, they, they wanna go back, right? They wanna go back to the halcyon days of the settler European oligarchy. And we can see that happening in Venezuela right now. You know, um, uh, Guaycapo, I think, or um, 
that's his name was a yeah guaycapo was a, an indigenous leader um you know who is now being celebrated um by the bolivarian revolution because they began to own and to grasp their own um history of resistance as as hugo chavez said you know he's like i have uh african and indigenous blood flowing through my veins you know the two kind of um the heartbeats of resistance in the in the in nuestra america our america and they toppled the colonial statues they toppled columbus they renamed you know columbus square the bolivarian square they they took down those statues and they put up indigenous leaders and now the right-wing opposition in, in venezuela is trying to reverse those gains that that process of decolonization and that's what that's what i think we're seeing right now in in bolivia is an attempt to reverse the gains, the historic gains and the arrival of indigenous people in history to say, you know, not only is Evo Morales the leader of this this country and the president of this country, but he's a he is the standard bearer for indigenous socialists in the hemisphere and across the world. He was the first indigenous head of state to oversee the permanent form on indigenous issues. That is historic, right? And so we, we can't forget not just the social gains that he has um, implemented in, the rev in this kind of revolutionary process. I would call it revolutionary in many ways because it came from the ground up. Um, but also symbolically, he represented a step forward for indigenous people. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing that violent reaction against it. Exactly. I mean, you, per you put it perfectly. Is that that's exactly the goal is recolonization of the americas and a few different points to respond to there first of all this idea that people in the global north just especially leftists in the global north who have never come anywhere close to power should lecture people in the global south who have had progressive revolutionary movements in political power for decades and have extremely wide support and have made huge accomplishments for their people. What, what, it's, think about the kind of colonial arrogance of some left, self-declared leftists living in like New York or LA or whatever, lecturing Evo Morales on what he should have done. I mean, what you should have done is stop your government from overthrowing him. We, you, you can't even do that. I mean, and this is self-criticism for me too. I mean, the left in the, in the global north is very weak and and a lot of the left you know my life goal has been to to center anti-imperialism as the the primary contradiction of understanding how capitalism functions in in the era of of late capitalism i mean lenin called it the highest stage of capitalism because imperialism is the way that capitalism expresses itself in this stage of monopoly capital and especially when you look at the legacy of european colonialism and the way that, that capitalism was birthed through European colonialism. These things are all inextricably tied, but there's this idea of people in the global north who, who are obsessed with this idea of ideological purity, and they're like, oh, Evo Morales wasn't socialist enough, and he has a mixed economy, and it's like, you can't even win an election. He won an election and governed an entire country and transformed it for years, and then he tried to continue governing and, and expand the revolution and then you call him a dictator or you help spread propaganda i mean it's it's worse than useful being a useful idiot i mean it's just it's really arrogant and and another quick point i was going to say is that you mentioned simon bolivar and the importance of 
reclaiming that indigenous history in in Venezuela. Now, what's interesting there is that it's actually kind of it's the opposite of white Jesus. It's incredible. Where you know European colonialists, if you go if you go back and you look even at Eastern Orthodox Christianity in like Slavic countries that you know whiteness is is an evolving political construct, but you know maybe what some Westerners might so-called Westerners might consider white, although you know now apparently R Russians and Slavs have been kind of uh, have like lost their whiteness because of this like RussiaGate ridiculous nonsense. But 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 whatever. If you actually look back at like some Eastern Orthodox paintings and stuff. Jesus was presented correctly as someone who was dark-skinned because he was from the Middle East. And what's interesting is that as, as Europeans and North Americans whiten Jesus, Venezuelans have done the opposite to Bolivar, where Simon Bolivar, the, the, what they, known as the, the great liberator of Latin America, who led a war against Spanish colonialism 200 years ago and then united parts of modern-day... Venezuela, Colombia, Bolivia, the name the name of the country Bolivia is named after Simon Bolivar. He he himself was mestizo. He was a mix of indigenous and European and rebelled against the colonial elite. And what's interesting is if you look at pr presentations of Simon Bolivar in Venezuela, they always emphasize his partial indigenous heritage. He always has dark skin. His hair is always dark. And I actually have a, a, a hat, a, a hat of leftist leaders in Latin America. I'm actually holding it right here. And it has Hugo Chavez. It has Fidel Castro, Che, Bolivar, Correa of Ecuador. And it has all these leaders. And it has Morales, Evo Morales, of course. And every single person on there has dark brown skin, which is funny because, you know, Fidel, Fidel was also from a mixed family. You know, his, his ancestors were partially Spanish. And he was lighter skinned. And of course, Che and Bolivar were kind of lighter skinned. But the left in Venezuela, has which is largely darker skinned, has reclaimed that and has actually taken these historical figures like Bolivar and Fidel and stressed their partial indigenous heritage and made them darker as a form of empowering their, their community. So I, I think that's really beautiful. And actually, it's a sign of how and it is a sign of what these right-wing elites are afraid of. They don't want pr pride in indigenous heritage because they know that the majority of the people in their countries are of partially indigenous, partially African ancestry. And if they're proud of their, their ancestors and their history of struggle, they might overthrow their current light-skinned elite oligarch leaders. Exactly. And I think like che, somebody like Che Guevara you know, really represents the the kind of revolutionary, not just Latin American tradition, but I'll say American, and I mean American, and, you know, my, my Venezuelan comrades reminded me of this. There is no Americas. There's one America, Nuestra America, our America. And he really represented that revolutionary tradition because he went to Africa and he fought in Angola. He fought for liberation there. He became African, right? And he died in Bolivia and he became Bolivian. And so what I understand from, you know, and I'm still learning a lot about this. This is all new for me. Um, what I'm learning about this is that all people born in this, in this hemisphere step into the stream of history, either 
um, the, the, the stream of history that represents the ancestors of resistance, going back to the first maroon colonies that overthrew their slave masters or ran away or escaped or married into indigenous communities and became relatives and became comrades in struggle, or even the white, you know, um, the white Europeans who allied with, um, you know, the, the Haitians, uh, the, or the, the African slaves in the Haitian revolution, um, that this is a, a part of a larger stream of revolutionary history and that Ebo Morales represents one of those ancestors. He himself is, you know, has pushed um, history forward because he represents that indigenous element and he's not shying away. He's not a separatist, right? He's not somebody who's saying that indigenous identity is exclusive unto itself, but it's part of a larger um, revolutionary tradition in, in, in uh, what we know as uh, Nuestra America, Pachamama or uh, Abiala, you know, the, that this is part of the real tradition of resistance. And I think that's something that we should all be proud about. And no matter what, you know, the outcome of this particular um, scenario is, is, and I think he said it, you know, best is like, if you kill me, you will only create millions. And this is every, you know, revolutionary in history, even if they weren't killed, they create, they reproduce themselves because they were part of that stream of history. Um, and so I, I think it's a good place to leave it there. And I just wanna say, um, you know, thanks for coming on and, and speaking with us and sharing your knowledge and where can people find you? Well, I tweet a lot. You can find me at Benjamin Norton, um, tweet too much, honestly. And I also help run an investigative journalism website called The Gray Zone. And you can find that at thegrayzone.com. That's gray with an A. And I'll say everyone who's listening should support the work Nick's doing in the Red Nation because you all, I mean, I said on Twitter recently, and I, I want to repeat it because I think it's 100% true, that the work you all are doing is so incredibly important that honestly, the Red Nation is one of the most important organizations in the world because what the settler colonial U.S. regime fears more than anything else is an independent anti-imperialist socialist organization in the belly of the settler colony that is making these international links with other indigenous struggles and other struggles of oppressed nations in the global south. And of course, we saw how the U.S. government viciously repressed, brutally repressed the American Indian movement. And I think in many ways, you all are following in the footsteps and I'm, I'm honored. I'm very glad to, to call you all friends and comrades. And I look forward to the work you all be doing. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. We appreciate it. Yeah. And, and if I may, I'll, I'll end with one final quote here. One of my favorite quotes from Evo Morales. He said, uh, Ser indígena y ser de la izquierda antiimperialista es nuestro pecado. He said, to be indigenous and to be part of the anti-imperialist left is our crime. That that's, is exactly why he was overthrown. Yeah, that's the tattoo on all of our hearts right now. Okay. <laughs> Great. Thanks all right, so man. Much, yeah, thanks. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Um, oh, he's he's back. <laughs> Wait, Cena's here. Yeah, he was here. We were having a bromance, and you were here the entire time. <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs>
All right, so that was the Red Nation podcast with special guest Ben Norton and updating about the situation in Bolivia. I learned a lot during that episode. So I'm going to just play some music on our way out, and we'll be back next week. Thanks to Pam for coming in and playing this again on uh, Friday. If you're listening live, uh, stay tuned for House of Pride Radio, which is coming up next at 6 p.m. here at Mutiny Radio. We'll continue by playing some more from Gang of Four, and we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody. assist you with your damaged gear. All rise! Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced. In a- hey, we're recording again. Uh, we're here at the Parkside. The Parkside. And we're getting ready for the 
tonight. You guys have listened to War Bison and Murphy's Law, and now we're very excited. Not my show. Six, ten, eighteen. The Parkside.
check, check, one, two. Yeah, yeah, check, check, one, two. Hey, hey.
But seriously.
much. Like I said before, last night of the tour. Again, we went to Colorado and on a Wednesday night, us and Murphy's larger 500 people. Because we play what our worst scenario, we played Oregon once on a fucking Tuesday night and it was 70 people. So we want to thank Murphy's Law for bringing all the good luck.
Shit. No matter what, let's have fucking fun today. Yeah. 